wonderful to worship with y'all and uh, to hear you sing before the Lord. I enjoy just hearing your voices ring out, and so I'm grateful for that this morning as each of you participated in worship together with us. Uh, As we turn back to Matthew's gospel in chapter 8, I'll give you a chance to go ahead and turn there. If you have the Pew Bibles, it's uh, on page 813, Matthew chapter 8. And um, while you're turning there, have you ever become involved in something and then it was not what you expected it to be? You, you, you get involved and then it turns out to be something very different. I think that's uh, almost a movie trope these days, right? Whether it's a comedic or something more sinister, you, you see that twist, right? Where some character or thing is not what you expected. And on a more personal level, some of you may have started a job and uh, started working someplace. And then after you've been there for a while, you found out that it just wasn't what you thought it was going to be. And uh, if somebody's going to join your team, it's important for them to know and for you to know that uh, you have the same uh, mission and same uh, idea in mind uh, of what the the goal is. And uh, sometimes that can lead to more severe problems if you aren't on the same page. And this is even a known issue with church planting in the American context. People will come having a certain idea of what they're looking for, and um, they want to be a part of something new. There's a new endeavor, and they think, this is what I've been looking for. And, um, but when things don't go in the direction they expect, they leave and move on, and they go to the next place. And church planners are told to expect this, that many that start out with them will not be with them a few years later. People become disenchanted with where they are, and they start looking for something new, and they find it in this new thing. And maybe in the case of a church plan, it would be, this is going to be a different kind of church. You may have seen advertisements like that, a new kind of church. Yeah, it's going to be different. But once they're there, they find that their custom vision of what the future is going to look like doesn't exactly mesh with the dozens of other customized visions that everybody else came with. And that raises some questions, right? Uh, The perspectives are different. There's this individualized expectation. And gaining alignment on the mission can be essential. So this week, as we continue through Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus challenge two individuals who came to him and asked to join and follow among his disciples. And at first glance, this is one of those count-the-cost passages. But it also raises some other questions. Set in the context of this growing number of crowds that were following Jesus, it asks the question of who is Jesus? And what is his mission? And what is our part in that plan? And so those are questions we're going to be asking this morning. And the, you know, the first section here of counting the cost, right, that, that is sort of the, the bare face text of the passage. But there it's set in the context of, of the chapter where there's this uh, growing number of crowds, and he is saying, let's go over, over to the other side to avoid those crowds. But each of these vignettes we're looking at in this chapter are also asking this question of who is Jesus and what is he about? And so it asks these questions of identity and purpose. So we're going to be looking at each of those this morning. But let's recap where we've been in Matthew 8 before we jump into this passage. 
at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Jesus teaches with authority. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see this authority displayed in healing and in miracles. And the draw of the crowds begins to intensify. And then in Matthew 7, verse 28, we see, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as someone who had authority and not as one of their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Now, last time, we we looked at the leper and the centurion, and they had to come through these crowds to get to Jesus. And the news of those miracles spread fast, and then more people came, drawing even more attention. And we also saw how that work is connected with the role of Messiah last time. And Matthew 8, 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So healing points towards Christ's work of atonement, the removal of the curse of sin. And Jesus' fame and notoriety were beginning to grow through both his teaching and his healing. And he responds by giving this command to cross over the sea. And now we come to Matthew 8, verse 18. Okay? Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So crowds continue to gather, and he tells his disciples, let's get out of here. But before he can cross over to the side, two men come to him, and they ask to join up with his company. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So there's a striking contrast here between this new section and the one we just went through. In the the first half of the chapter, he heals many. And as he is doing so, he commends their faith. There's a genuineness to their devotion to Christ that transcends the mere, mere healing events themselves. And they recognize Jesus as sent from God, and they display humility and submission and adoration of Christ, and he healed among them. But moving forward into this section and even on further into the chapter, the people respond differently. Whereas before, when he displayed his power over the physical and the spiritual, the people responded by, with faith. Now, in this next section, they begin to respond with fear. And what we see is that, you know, chapters 8 and 9 are, are telling us all about Jesus' authority and power but they're also showing us how different kinds of people responded to that authority and power. Right? So he gives these warnings to the two men. And so regardless of these responses, it raises these questions. Who is Jesus? Who is this? And how do we respond? Do we respond with faith or with fear? And his warning to those who would follow him challenges their assumptions about who he is and what he came to accomplish. So that's where we will be this week. 
All right, so let's look again at the passage. I'm just going to reread verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So two men. One is labeled a scribe. The other is a disciple or a student, and they both seem earnest. And there's a reference here to this teacher-disciple-student relationship. It may be a little foreign to us today, but uh, there was some formality to it. Disciples followed the teacher. And they were exposed not just to the teaching, but also to the pattern of life of the teacher. So there was this life-on-life discipleship. And it meant that there was time spent together. It means that they had to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And he gives orders, and they follow. And this is not a casual learning environment. There is some rigor to this relationship. And here comes someone who says that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. He says just that. He will follow wherever he goes. But Jesus responds in an unexpected way. He warns him off. Why would he do that? You know, what religious leader would warn somebody off and give him a reason not to follow? So is Jesus just raising the standards for these two fellows here? No, I, I think his reply points to something very important. He's challenging their assumptions. And he knows their hearts, so he knows where they're coming from. And he's able to read that. And he's challenging what they will experience in following Jesus. And it is not what they expect. But why do these particular men come to join the group? Jesus mentions a lack of a home to them. And when we think of authority in this world, we think of permanence and stability. right? So this passage has been talking about Jesus' authority. Yet, where is the permanence and stability here in this section? Right? People get attracted to that permanence. You know, in eras where the church had some amount of cultural clout and authority, people came to the church to participate in that, to be a part of that, to seek some piece of that authority and power. And when the church does not have that cultural clout, those people will be gone. I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds great, doesn't it? It's a really earnest statement. Why would somebody not think good of that? But Jesus tells the scribe, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So notice the natural examples given. The language connects with Jesus' humanity here. Yet, it uses this term... Son of man. If you go look at Daniel 7, Son of Man ties into divinity as a title. And yet here there seems to be some connection to Christ's humanity. I think it's setting up a juxtaposition for us. 
If Jesus came to proclaim a kingdom, Jesus' itinerant ministry sure doesn't sound like any earthly kingdom we have seen. And when statements like this make no sense to us, we need to ask whether we are understanding correctly. Right? If there, there's some piece that, that you know, two things seem contrasted and we're not understanding how they align and connect, then maybe that's pointing something out for us to, to learn there. So what does this mean? An important teacher who has great authority and power has no place to lay his head. And the king of all the earth does not need stuff to accomplish his purposes. And the certain impermanence of his mission is not tied to establishing a home base to work from. And he's bringing it up to show that the benefits of following him are very different from the benefits of participating in an earthly kingdom. And your proximity to Jesus aren't going to bring you those benefits the way you might think if that's what you're seeking. So if the first guy seemed to be a little hasty, he's just running up, saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. It's like, okay, right? Let's talk a little bit here. Now the second guy comes up, and maybe he's a little too slow. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That seems like a reasonable request. We have all have things to deal with in life. Commitments to family are one of those. And even Jesus gives an allowance to get your ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath. So sometimes you have to take care of things in life. And even in our own culture, we value responsibility and taking care of what falls to us. There's honor and virtue in doing the right thing. We should expect someone to take care of those personal matters. And some say that Jesus is making a distinction here between spiritual life and spiritual death. In other words, a disciple is concerned with new life while the spiritually dead can bury their own dead. I don't know if that's necessarily required by the text, though. Um, you know, is, is this uh, just some phrase of saying uh, the, the people doing the burying, are they physically dead or spiritually dead? Well, some, some folks will bring that out as a thread of interpretation here. I do think there, a reorientation to what's important is key to the passage, and certainly spiritual new life goes with that. It's, an, it's a really key part. Another interpretation is this phrase of bury my father and what that means. And some will say that it means that the father may not be dead just yet. And the death is coming. Not sure when it's coming. So I, I've got to attend to these matters, but it's an open-ended commitment. So I don't know how long that's going to take. And that may be reasonable. But um, in that case, this potential disciple may never get started. I'm sure you've dealt with people who always have some excuse. There's always something that's going to take priority. That may be what's happening here. So one person charged in too fast without considering what was involved, and the other asked for an extension to defer enrollment till next semester, basically. Right? So each in their own way, they have their other priorities. How does Jesus respond? He says, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
So Jesus is emphasizing, follow me, right? Above all these other attachments in life, in this world, people will follow crowds, but Jesus says, follow me. But when the crowds lead to Jesus, that raises some questions for us, doesn't it? It can be confusing. It raises questions of motivations. Jesus is saying, follow me, but that's where all the crowds are heading anyway. And so Jesus gives one of those shocking statements meant to wake us up. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And so those are hard words. It's a jarring statement. Jesus demands commitment from his followers, and that commitment is to him personally. Everything in that statement is calling his disciples to follow him first. And so these two guys, they don't come across as jokers, insincere. They don't seem to be trying to trip Jesus up, like some of those Pharisee interactions. In fact, they likely have shown some amount of willingness to follow in alignment and agreement with Jesus. They may even consider themselves to be his disciples. And what they're seeking now is for permission to follow along with Jesus as he goes from place to place. So what is different about them? Right? This is a teachable moment. When you come to Christ, you put him in his kingdom first. It's a reorientation to the whole concept of who God is and what his plan is, and what, who we are, and what our place is in that plan. And so don't come to Christ for the wrong reasons. Check your motivations. But you, you want to follow, but you don't want to let go of other ambitions. And this is a sticky subject because of sin in our hearts. It can be difficult to, to untie our motivations sometimes understand where we're coming from. We intend to follow well, but our own desires come in and subvert our best intentions. So to follow Jesus after he said that he would said this, that to follow him, it would be to embrace a call to suffer, to give up a certain things in this life in order to pursue Christ. And so Jesus challenges them to check their motivations by making them count the cost of following. Jesus does this again um, in Matthew 16. Following Jesus does have its own benefits, right? But there's also some uncertainty. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So in that later passage, Jesus is straightforward in contrasting the ambition for power in this world with this desire to follow Christ. Ambition in itself is not sinful. But Jesus is warning them to come to the kingdom in humility and adoration of the Messiah. Don't come to be part of something important. There's an attraction to crowds and being associated with the people who draw them. But Jesus did not come to draw a crowd. He came to accomplish the work the Father had sent him to do. 
And we come to the person of Christ and he says, follow me. So let's talk about Jesus avoiding the crowds. So in Matthew 8, 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. What we see here is that these crowds were growing, yet there's this interaction with these two fellows, so they seem to have come for the wrong reasons. And that raises some questions about how we should think about ministry. So as we read this section, it would be easy to overlook the notes about the crowds. As Jesus' reputation grew, you would expect more people to come. Drawing crowds is going to be a natural side effect of what Jesus was doing. He was working miracles in front of the people. You would expect people to want to look into that. And some people were, you know, blessed by that. They were excited. Is this the Messiah who had come? There was a legitimate reason for people to want to look into Christ coming and, and doing this work among them. It was inevitable, and there's a bit of tension between people needing to know that the Messiah had come, and yet that it had to be balanced with what his coming actually meant. Right? He did not mean the immediate establishment of a kingdom in the earthly sense. Instead, Jesus is proclaiming a message, and he's training people willing to follow him at this point. Right? So looking ahead, we'll see Jesus speaking of the harvest of the kingdom, And he sends out the 12 into the harvest. And he's amplifying that message as he does that. He sends them out. And he's training them for kingdom work. And his focus for now is on preparing them to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and later establish the church. And yet crowds keep coming. And it draws not just the people who want to see, but also the people who may want to identify with something great, something big and important, something successful. Have you seen that in life? We are not immune to that as a church. We can all be a little susceptible to church models that intend to attract a crowd. And there's some practical benefits to being organized and doing things well with excellence. As Christians, we should seek to do our work with excellence. But there is a method whereby the organization and professionalism becomes the driving power behind what you do. If you're professional enough, if you run with business principles, if you style things the right way in the service, if you follow the cultural or political uh, identities of a local people group, then you can tie into that local affinity. If you have the right programs, then you can grow a church. You can do it. And the perception of of success in itself will draw people. So if the goal is to hope that those crowds hear the gospel, then we should rejoice, right? Because the gospel is to be proclaimed. 
We should rejoice in the gospel going out. We should praise God that people come in here and praise God that there is fruit among Christ's church and know that God can work in any of these situations that people are placed into. God can work in the heart of the spirit of people. But if people find their identity in being part of something rather than finding their identity in Christ, then there's been a subtle shift. Notice how these two folks who come, they offer to follow Jesus, yet he replies, follow me. And we should be cautious of the draw of something other than Christ himself. The good news of Jesus Christ should be what binds us together. Even good churches over time can be bound together by these other affinities rather than Christ. And it can happen to anyone. It's not about size. Right? So don't just sit here thinking of some church across town that you want to point the finger at. Okay, so given that, how should we be thinking about ministry? We should be thinking about ministry in terms of spiritual formation. How do the things we do as a church help us to grow in Christ-likeness? Doing things well and organized is not bad in itself. But it's not the end. Following Christ is the end. And so the way we organize should support the growth and life of the body of Christ. Right? If the programs are shiny and new but overbuilt, if they're professional but they're not changing people, if they build friendships but are not letting the word of God dwell richly in us, then the focus has shifted. It's a subtle shift, and you may not even notice it at first. Jesus modeled discipleship by walking through life alongside them. Follow me is an invitation to joining in that life-on-life discipleship. There's something intrinsic to human nature about a shared meal, about talking together with others, about sharing life experiences and walking alongside others who are experiencing hurt, and hardship. And it's hard to find that in the crowds. So on one side, we're drawn towards our own proclivities. And it's just reinforcing where we want to go. What we already believe. On the other side, we're being shaped and molded. That's what discipleship is. It's about bringing about spiritual formation in the context of other people speaking into our lives, all based upon the word of God, speaking into our community together. Right, so people today can find their purpose and identity in a group, and that can become their primary source, giving direction to their thought and identity, but that group doesn't even have to be local, face-to-face. It may be online. And the algorithm draws you into your proclivities. Right? It reinforces rather than corrects. And you will never get away from the battle of ideas, but we should be willing to step back and ask, what is this a draw? How is this shaping me? And what is your crowd? 
So see yourself in light of a new identity in Christ and let that guide how we relate to one another as his family and how we relate in worship and how we relate to the world around us. And may we as a church grow in love for one another and grow in Christ's likeness and be formed and shaped by prayer, the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that is not flashy. But it is new life in Christ. And so following Jesus as a disciple meant life on life discipleship, being around others who were following and submitting to him and being shaped by that experience. Real life community is where you find this. And so when Jesus asks them to count the cost, he's also implicitly raising this question of identity and purpose. What does it mean to follow Christ and participate in his mission? Okay, so let's look at that, our identity and purpose. Right, Jesus' challenge to these men implies something. What are you joining? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so just like these miracles ask, who is this Jesus here? It's asking who Jesus is and, and what Jesus came to accomplish. And so let's look at those. Who is Jesus? What is the plan? And what is your part in that plan? Right. The Gospels continually ask this question, who is Jesus, and also answer it. You know, Matthew chapter 8 and 9 are full of these sections, who is Jesus? And who is this man who heals? Right. It gives an answer. The Messiah, the suffering servant, he bore our iniquities. But that question in the background as we continue, who is this person who commands authority yet has no place to lay his head? Who is this man who calms the sea? Who has complete authority and power over a legion of demons? Who is Jesus? If you are going to follow, it's not because the miracles show a measure of success by the standards of this world. When the time comes, when there's no success, and when power and authority is lacking, who will you follow? Some wanted to attach themselves to Jesus' power and authority. Matthew 18 and 20, we see some examples of this. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? God. Thank you. Good old church answer. God, Jesus, Bible, right? All right. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or in 20, grant us to sit at your left and your right. Now, why were people asking these questions? They wanted a piece of that authority. They sat with Jesus. But Jesus says, follow me, right? Being vaulted by being in proximity to Jesus is vanity. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, Son of God, the one who came to paper the sins of the world. His kingdom is not of this world. So don't come to him looking for a boost in authority or a nice job. Jesus has a much different plan for how being found in him brings worth and value. And so what is that plan? What is the plan? If he's so successful, why would there be no place to lay his head? If he commands such authority, why would we need to find our identity in something so radically different than our family or the community that we grew up in? 
You can offer to follow, but you can also miss the point as you're doing that. They came to him saying, I'll follow wherever you go. And Jesus says, follow me. Seems a little nonsensical, doesn't it? The guy just offered to follow Jesus and he says, follow me. There's a purpose in mission to Christ's work. He came to proclaim the kingdom. And some respond by saying, good, let's set up that kingdom right here, right now. Let's do it. But Jesus intends to go to the cross So his mission is different than they expect. So how do we build kingdoms? How do we build kingdoms here on earth? It's a lot of work, for sure. A lot of effort. A lot of energy. You build an institution. You get people to align with your message. We labor to build on earth. How does Christ build his kingdom? He builds it in the hearts of people changed by God's Spirit. We just finished the Sermon on the Mount a while back where Jesus lays out this plan for what the kingdom people ought to look like. And there is moral character there connected with new life in Christ. And there's virtue and blessing there. And yet Jesus tells them the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. How do you make sense of this? Right? The, the plan is to change people. Right? This, this proclamation in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to, to show what this change looks like in the heart of, new, of people. And the new covenant is all about this. Right? You have to change people's hearts to bring this kingdom into fruition. So... Christ came to restore what was broken at the fall. The kingdom citizens are people who follow from the heart. And you don't get there by trying harder. The kingdom plan is to inaugurate this new covenant to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. This is God's work in the lives of people. So in part, the the kingdom is here already. Christ has already established his church. The church exists to display the wisdom and power of God in a way that confounds the power of a fallen world through changed lives. And yet, all this is just a down payment on a future kingdom where Christ will come and set up this new life in abundance. The kingdom even then, operates on such new principles that it's inextricably tied to this restoration of the world and the undoing of sin. So it's not like existing earthly kingdoms. They may be, in a sense, uh, an image or a type. You know, we understand this word kingdom, but it's different. It's a different kind of kingdom. The, The plan is to establish the kingdom now and yet to come. And in light of that, We can ask, what's your part in that plan? Right, so we've already seen count the cost. Right, so are you willing to follow Jesus even into uncertainty? Are you willing to go after Jesus if it means not knowing what tomorrow holds? And he says, follow me. And Jesus challenged them to consider what that means to follow him. If that we too should challenge our own assumptions. We serve because he's worthy 
of our adoration and devotion, we follow because where else do we have to go? Right? He has the words of eternal life. Follow him. So what that's saying is that following him, it's not like counting the cost is about work your way into heaven. Right? Follow him and counting the cost is about knowing that no matter what else comes in life, there's nowhere else that we can find life than in Christ. Right? Let, let's be the church. Right? There are some who come to the kingdom work wanting to see its fullness now. And there's a sense in which all believers should long for that. We long to see it come. We long to see fruitfulness in lives of people around us. We long to see the kingdom come in its fullness and to see God's goodness displayed before the dying world around us. And we should be creative. We should love God's people. We should rejoice and weep. And we should display that goodness of the kingdom before the world personally and and how we relate to one another. It may never be that someone would come and look upon Christ's church and struggle to find the work of God upon the lives of the people there. Do your neighbors and coworkers and friends, right, when they, when they look, what do they see? Right? Don't think of this as about being a good Christian or following certain cultural conventions. No, it's about a changed life. The emphasis is on the changed. Right? A people who once loved the world now love the Lord. And that's based in humility and dependence upon the Lord. And so when we ask the question, do they see that in you? Right? The only way that they're going to see that in you is if you're just clinging to Christ, right? In, in your humility and dependence upon him. Right? We come to him knowing that we need his work in our lives. So follow him. Right? And let's get the gospel right. So if we answer the question of who is Jesus and what is his plan, that's going to lead into the good news So looking forward in Matthew, Jesus is going to the cross and his death on our behalf and resurrection to new life are good news for us because we who were once alienated are now brought near through the work of Christ. So if Jesus coming represents the inauguration of the new covenant, then that is good news. Where else can we find life? Let's point others to follow him as well. So he can bring new life, and he can bring new life even in you. Is that good news to you? So who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who pays for the sins of the world, the one who brings new life. And when people come to them, he tells them, follow me. So brothers and sisters, let's come to him. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you that we do have a Savior that we can come to. So, Lord, help us to come to Christ, knowing that there is nowhere else where we can find life. And that our ambitions and desires for certain things in this world, Lord, as you bless us, that we could find joy in the blessings that you give and provide, but that we would come knowing that Christ is enough. 
and that it's in him that we find life. It's in Christ's name I pray.